Good evening, everyone. We cut it a little close. Uh, David and I lost track of time at dinner. So th this evening, um, we are continuing our study of where is God. And then, of course, we fill in the blank each night uh, with a different topic. Uh, one of the reasons it went along with me and David lost track of time is David and I went to school together, and Allison as well. Uh, we all went to school at Fred Hardeman University together. And uh, David has been, has been a good friend. We were in the same social club in school. I have a lot of respect for him. I'm going to read a little bio, and I might have a little bit to add to that. But David um, is a Freed Hardeman graduate from Buford, Georgia, where his parents are currently evangelizing the local Korean population. David currently is the associate minister at Lehman Avenue Church of Christ, where he began his ministry in 2019. He actually began interning there, um, and then after graduating Freed in, in 2021, started full-time there. Um, David's ministry focuses on the college and young adults, as well as the youth of the congregation. And so uh, a fun fact about David is David was born and grew up part of the time in South Korea. Uh, his parents, his whole family moved over, and they lived in a couple different places, but he's got a very unique perspective on, on ministry and the church, uh, especially the church around the world. And so um, I'm really excited to hear what David has to say. So I'm not going to take up any more of his time. So, David, take it away. It's good to be here tonight. Uh, I appreciate Noah so much and what he's doing here, what he's doing my job. Um, thank you for inviting me to speak here tonight. Tonight we'll be looking at where is God? We're going to fill in the blank. Where is God when my heart breaks? Um, and as you can see, our text is uh, 1 Kings chapter 19. As you know, uh, that's where um, Elijah and God have this uh, conversation after uh, he begins fleeing for his life. But we're going to look at that um, more closely as we get into the lesson. You know, heartbreak is one of those things, uh, one of those words, uh, the meaning of it has been very muddled, uh, been taken away. It's kind of like the words that we use, um, like awesome, or maybe literally. You see that a lot nowadays. You use the word literally for things that you don't really mean literally, but you say it anyway because you want to put emphasis, right? And you want to use a stronger word. And sometimes we do that without thinking about the, the meaning of the word. And we do that a lot with heartbreak. Uh, another word we do this a lot with is, is love. We talk about love a lot. I love you, I love that, I love this, but um, oftentimes we probably mean I like this a lot or I like this person a lot. And we start asking ourselves, you know, uh, with, with a definition, a true, sincere definition of love, we start asking ourselves the things the, and the people that we say we love, are we willing to sacrifice? Are we willing to give up our uh, own time, resources, maybe sometimes even our own life, you know, would we be able to do that for the sake of that love? When we start asking those hard questions, you realize how much we throw around that word um, a lot. So heartbreak is, is much like it. You know, it, it's, a, it's a poetic word. It's a nice word that kind of rolls off the tongue. Um, it's something that expresses sorrow. Uh, and again, we just kind of use it to as another way to express sorrow. And, and it does, 
express sorrow. For those of us uh, who have experienced or are continuing to experience true love, know the difference between love, true, genuine, sincere, sacrificial love, and the love that we just kind of like to say, oh, I really love this ice cream. You know, there's a big difference between those two. Heartbreak is the same. Have you ever been truly and deeply heartbroken? Sorrow and grief that brings you to your knees. It hurts so much. There's so much pain and there's so much baggage in your heart. It's hard to focus or even think about anything else. Have you ever had that kind of experience of heartbreak? Maybe you've experienced loss. Maybe you've experienced betrayal. Maybe you've experienced just the, the cruelty and meanness of the world around us, the society that we live in. Maybe you've seen how unfair the world that we live in is. Have you ever been so heartbroken, or your chest tightens up, you're, you're immobilized, you can't, can't think, when you try to think about tomorrow, it's just darkness, you can't imagine, and I'm sure as I'm saying these words, those memories are rushing in, memories of loss, memories of, of despair, bouts of depression, whatever it is that you went through, those pains and sufferings, I'm sure those things are welling up and, and you're thinking about that right now. We all never really forget those days when our hearts are truly, truly broken. And you know, there are many examples that we can go to for brokenheartedness in the Bible. There are plenty of people in the list of biblical characters that we can study whose heart we can go through all of those, but uh, time wouldn't permit that. Take we could even study that for an entire year, and we would have plenty of material. So tonight, what I want to do is I want to camp out. I want us to camp out at First uh, Kings chapter nineteen and look at this interaction between Elijah and God. You know the story. Right? Elijah just defeated four hundred fifty uh, prophets of Baal. And he is now fleeing for his life, running for his life from Jezebel. He finds himself brokenhearted. He's tired. He's exhausted. He's destitute. He feels rejected all alone. And God interacts with him. And there's this encounter. And I think examining this, we'll see where God is when our hearts break. So as we ask that question, where is God when my heart breaks? Uh, let's notice five ways in this portion of Scripture, five ways that God responds to Elijah's heart. Number one, God cares for Elijah's physical needs. If you look at 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 4 through 8, it says, but he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, This is Elijah. It is enough now, O Lord. 
Take away my life, for I am no better than my father. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head cake, cake on hot stones and a jar of water. He ate and drank and laid down again. The angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank. And went in the strength of that forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mount. The first thing that God does, if you will notice in the text, before he says anything, before he even utters a single word, the first thing God does is he sends an angel to feed Elijah. When Elijah is heartbroken, he is exhausted, he is tired, he is down, and he can't even move. He's just laying there, asking God to take away his life. He is that heartbroken and exhausted. And the first thing that God does is he ministers to Elijah's physical. You know, the most difficult times to take care of ourselves, when are those times? It's when we're going through grief, when we're sad. When life gets so exhausted, tired, and we just can't even find the, the energy to get out of bed, brush our teeth, take a shower. It's in those moments we find ourselves, those moments of heartbreak, in those moments we find, our, find it very difficult to take care of ourselves physically. The incredible thing about this exchange between God and Elijah that, that takes place in First uh, Kings chapter 19, is that God begins this by taking care of Elijah's physical needs. And it shows us three things about God. Three things about God. Number one is that God is aware of our physical state. And he cares about that, not just the spiritual state. So God knew what kind of state Elijah was in. He knew where his heart was. But he also knew because of that, Elijah was in no shape to have a productive conversation, to move himself, get out of that state. So what does God do? He simply gives him food and water. He does it twice. And the, the angel explains, the second time, he explains why he's doing this, because he, you don't have energy. You can't even get up, right? How are you going to do anything right now with that in that state? The angel explains. So God feeds him water to drink. And Elijah takes those, energizes himself. With that food and water that he had, with that energy, he travels 40 days and 40 nights to Mount Horeb, where the conversation with God eventually takes place. So what does that show us? That God is aware of our physical state, not just the spiritual. And then number two, is that God does, is not just aware of our physical state, but he cares about it. He cares about where we are in terms of our physical well-being. God saw Elijah's physical state and, and where he was in terms of that. that he gave him water to drink. Sometimes I feel like we, we wrongly get this idea that God wants us all to be just tools, right? And, and, and sure, we want to be God's instruments to God's will. But I feel like sometimes, and I think this is a wrong idea that we get, that God doesn't care about what we do with our bodies. God doesn't care about our well-being in terms of the physical. And he just wants us to throw our lives on the line and throw our bodies out there. God's not that kind of God. God sure wants us to be a part of the accomplishment of his will. 
but he also wants to take care of us. So God's not just focused on the spiritual. God's focused on the person. We see that. Then number three, God actually provides remedy via his messengers. And in this case, God sent a, an angel. I'm not, gonna, I'm not saying right now that an angel is going to pop up you know, in your front, at your front door and giving you food and water uh, when you need it. Um, but who does he send? He sends uh, our brothers and sisters in Christ. Those are the, the angels, messengers. Um, who are providing us when we are heartbroken, we are down and out. Sometimes we'll get that and we take, we take that for granted. That's something, a blessing that we have access to in each other. And when we take care of another person in the family, God's family, who is hurting, who is down, and they just can't seem to get out of that state, when we assist them and give them a helping hand, guess what? We are part of God's will, we are doing that, part of God's ministry, broken hearted. So God provides. We read of people like Stephen or Paul, people who have just given all, all of themselves to the ministry. And you know, we rightfully romanticize that because that, that is an amazing and noble deed that, that they, they have done. It was recorded in the Bible. However, I think it would be a mistake for us to say, or a mistake for us to think, that God just wants us to throw our lives out there aimlessly. And that God doesn't want us to take care of ourselves. God doesn't care about us. We can definitely see that here with God's first initial interaction with Elijah. It's not words, it's deeds. Uh, we ought to present ourselves as living sacrifice, Romans chapter 12, verse 1, right? Once again, it does not mean that God wants us destitute and not kept in that well-being state. You know, Jesus teaches this in Matthew chapter 6, verse 31, 32, in the Sermon on the Mount, that we're not to worry about what we will eat or what we will drink. Why? Because God knows that we need those things. So God's aware God will provide. God cares, of, uh, cares about us and cares for us. Number two, God gives Elijah an opportunity to speak. When I read this interaction, or this exchange between God and Elijah, it never fails to fascinate me how God approaches the situation. We saw that God, before even saying anything to Elijah, he begins by ministering to him, physically speaking. He provides the food and the water that he needs to be able to get back up and at least walk around and be able to have a productive conversation. And so God does that. That's amazing. But God still does not say very much after Elijah has made that journey. Days and 49 stood out. Right? And he lodges in that cave. Mountain, right? Uh, God still doesn't say much. Right? What does he say? Uh, in verse 9, uh, you can see, there he came to a cave and lodged in it, talking about Elijah. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. He said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah answers. You skip down to verse, verse 13. 
And Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak, and went out and stood at the entrance of the tent. Behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah answers him a second time. So God doesn't say much initially in this interaction between him and Elijah. What does he do? He simply asks Elijah, What are you doing? And that's not like a demanding, What are you doing? Like when you get in trouble with your parents. Hey, what are you doing? Over there. No, that's not, that's not what God is doing. God is opening up a conversation. Because notice what Elijah does in response to God's question, what are you doing here, Elijah? What does Elijah do? He opens up. He talks about what's on his mind and what is happening inside of him right now. What is on his heart, his concerns, the things that have happened to him that matter. But Elijah just puts it out there and speaks to God about it. Isn't that amazing? We talk about oftentimes how we take the avenue of prayer. And I don't know if we say that a lot, but I don't know if we really truly understand sometimes how great of a blessing that is. You're talking about a God who is so powerful, who is so powerful and so big and so mighty. He created everything that we can ever possibly think of or imagine and that we experience every single day. And he did it by just and that God stopped for a second, for a moment, and asked a man, Elijah, what are you doing? And he listened. He doesn't cut Elijah off. He doesn't, he goes, oh, but, 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 okay, 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 great. Now here, here's what you need. No, he sits there and listens to him twice. Elijah says a lot of things twice. God listens. It's amazing. When we look at the big picture in retrospect, you can kind of see how what Elijah was saying was a bit presumptuous. Because he, the reason he is, a big reason why he is sad right now is because he thinks he's all alone. Now we find out later in the text that God proves to him, hey, you're not all alone. There are still 7,000 people who have not bowed down or kissed Baal. And you're going to have a successor, Elisha. Right? So we, Elijah is working off of limited information. He's crying out to God. He has God, the state that he is in. God doesn't stop him still. God doesn't rebuke him. God doesn't punish him for speaking his mind. God's in process. That is amazing. Because of who God is. Talking about a God so powerful. He stops and When I think about this type of prayer um, that we see in the Bible, my mind always goes to Jeremiah, the weeping prophet. His ministry was full of hardships and loneliness. Was, in fact, defined by those things, especially loneliness. Right? He couldn't even go to weddings, let alone get married and have a family. God didn't permit that for him. That was his ministry. And nobody listened to him all throughout his life. He preached the word of the Lord tried to get his, his people to turn back to God. Nobody listened to him. No one, not one single person listened to Jeremiah. This Jeremiah cries out to God about the injustice and the evil doing, the evildoers around him in Jeremiah chapter 12. Jeremiah chapter 12 verse 1 reads, Righteous are you, O Lord, 
When I complain to you, yet I would plead my case before you. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do, you, why do all who are treacherous thrive? You plant them, and they take root. They grow and produce fruit. You are near in their mouth and far from their heart. You, O oh Lord, know me. You see me and test my heart for me. Pull them out like sheep for the slaughter and set them apart for the day of slaughter. How long will the land mourn? The grass of every field wither. For the evil of those who dwell in it, send the birds who swept away. They said, will not see harvest or latter end. You know what God does in response to that prayer? He zapped Jeremiah out of existence. No, he didn't do that. You know what he did? He answered him. First of all, he let him speak, which is amazing in and of itself. The fact that he, he stopped for a moment and let a man speak to him in a kind of a demanding tone. Right? Jeremiah is saying, where are you, God, in all this injustice and pain that's happening around me? Where are you? simply answers him. And he gives him a plan. He shows Jeremiah in his response. If you take a, take a, just read through God's response. There's also another one uh, in Jeremiah chapter uh, this kind of interaction. But read through those and notice what God does. He gives him insight into God's plans. God didn't owe Jeremiah anything. And we go back to Elijah, and the same thing can be said. God didn't owe Elijah anything. He didn't have to answer to that. He didn't have to stop and listen to this man about things that he didn't even know about. God does. God stopped. Listen. Let Elijah speak what was on his heart. When we are heartbroken, we remember that, God, that we serve the same God who is great and mighty and powerful. And can do all these things, but who is gentle and loving enough to be able to stop and listen to our concerns. See, God cares. Just listen. In our heart broke. Number three, God leads Elijah to stillness. First Kings chapter 19, verse 11. And he said, Go out. God speaking to Elijah. And he said, Go out and stand on the mountain. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains, and broke in pieces the rocks. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his clothes. Out and stood. After Elijah answers God for the first time, God tells Elijah to go outside and stand on the mountain. A series of things happen. This used to confuse me a lot, and it's confusing you right now. You know, you're asking yourself, why is this happening? What's going on here? There's a there's a very strong wind that splits rocks, and an earthquake randomly, <laughs> and then fire. Who started that fire? You know, uh, there's these series of things happening, um, and then you're wondering, well, what's going on? Uh, notice what the text says after each text. But the Lord was not in the Then the Lord was not in the earthquake. Then the Lord was not in the fire. And finally, 
Where is the Lord? Where was the Lord? It's interesting to see what has happened. And the contrast between it and what Elijah just came from. Remember what we talked about earlier? You know the story too. What happens in chapter 18? Elijah con uh, confronts Ahab of his evil doings and his idol worship. And then Elijah defeats the prophets of Baal. And not just a regular kind of way, the most spectacular sort of way is this defeat of 450 prophets of Baal. Remember the prophets of Baal, you know, they, the deal was, hey, but let's see who can pray to, uh, you know, let's pray to uh, our own gods, you to Baal, and I'll, I'll pray to my God. Uh, let's see who can have an answer first. Prophets of Baal cut themselves and they're crying out to Baal all day long, and nothing happened. And Elijah mocks them that he finally, what does he do? He pours 12 jars of water on the altar. Praise to God. Reveal himself. What does God do? He answers. Fire so hot that incinerated even the stones and the wood and all the water that was on and around the altar. It was an undeniable, unmistakable act of God. And you're thinking, whoa, Elijah just saw that. He, he defeated all those uh, you know, prophets of Baal, 450 people. He defeated them single-handedly by praying to God. And God showed himself to him through this mighty act. That must have been amazing. But Elijah's sad and down after. He is heartbroken. He feels alone. And you're thinking, Elijah, you should be in spiritual high, the biggest spiritual high of your entire life. You just saw God manifest himself in such great might and power. You know how God chooses to reveal himself to this Elijah? The Elijah that is heartbroken and tired and exhausted and cannot go on anymore? He doesn't show himself in the great wind that's splitting rocks. He doesn't show himself in the earthquake that's just splitting the earth apart. He doesn't show himself in fire that consumes. What does he show himself in? Low, quiet, little breeze. Something that you can barely hear or feel. God decides to reveal himself. Brings Elijah out. Elijah out to that. And I think God's doing two things here. It's amazing when we see this. First, God wanted to show Elijah where he wasn't. That's why all those things happened. This great wind, God's not there. This great earthquake, God's not there. Fire, something that can consume things, God's not there. What's God trying to say? That God's not necessarily in those powerful things that you think that God would be in, that God would reveal himself. Those great winds and the great earthquake fire, it's mighty, it's awesome, it's powerful. God instead intentionally chooses to do himself still quiet. I think God, God does things. God doesn't just you know, does, do things on a whim. He has a plan and he has intentionality in his action. I think he was doing it. And I think a second thing that sometimes fail to 
recognizes that God wanted Elijah to come out of the cave and just be in calm. And I think maybe that was another reason why God revealed himself that way. He could have revealed himself in some mighty, grand, spectacular way, kind of like what he did with the battle against 450 prophets of Baal. He doesn't. Specifically in this situation. Why? Because Elijah's heartbroken. He's tired. He doesn't want to, he doesn't, he saw that. He believes in God, sure. Right now what he needs is calmness, stillness. God's bringing him back focus. I think it's wonderful when we see it like that. You can see God's intentionality behind these things. God, God didn't just randomly throw, you know, these mighty supernatural acts out there just for whatever reason. God did that to show Elijah where he was. And in our moments of heartbrokenness, we're tired and down and focus on anything. Maybe sometimes we look at or look for God in places. We look for God in those great, mighty things that will change our lives forever. You know, overnight kind of deal. Sometimes God's just in those quiet moments. We're all by ourselves, and all we can hear is air conditioning running. We are praying to God, and we're with Him all alone by ourselves. We're heartbroken. Remember that sometimes. We forget that. And we see it that God is doing this here. Number four, God renews Elijah's purpose. Read with me in 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 15-18. And the Lord said to him, Go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael for Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be over Israel. And Elijah, the son of Shaphat, of Abel Beholah, shall anoint to be prophet face. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu. The one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elijah. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed Baal, every mouth After ministering to Elijah by tending to his physical needs with food and the water, and opening up a conversation by inviting him to speak up and tell him, tell God, what is on his mind, and listening to him about his thoughts and what's going on in his heart, and also finally leading Elijah to calmness, God doesn't just take Elijah's son. He didn't lead up to that all that up just to say, all right, Elijah, you learned your lesson. Snap. There you go. No more suffering. No more pain. God doesn't do that. In fact, at this point of this interaction, what is still there? Jezebel is still there. She probably still wants Elijah's life. Uh, idolatry is still rampant in Israel, right? That hasn't fixed yet. And there are the, all these problems that, that Elijah was originally running from, and he was exhausted and tired because of and it's still there. Right? It's not like God has magically zapped away all those things. What does God do for Elijah? He gives Elijah a renewed purpose. A duty that he can 
put himself to. So, a few things. God gives Elijah a few tasks to accomplish. Return to Damascus and anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. That's verse 15. Right? And then anoint Jehu to be king over Israel. Verse 16. And then the verse 16, anoint Elijah to be prophet in Elijah's place. Those are very specific instructions that God is wanting Elijah to accomplish. Right? And then what does he also do? He gives him uh, kind of like what will happen. Right? And perhaps this is part of the reason why he's giving these instructions. Anyone who escapes Hazael will be put to death by Jehu. Verse 17. Anyone who escapes Jehu uh, will be put to death by Elisha. Verse 17. Then also, there are 7,000 in Israel who have not yet submitted to Baal. Verse 18. What is God doing here? What is he doing here? God is rekindling the purpose with Elijah so that he can continue. He has given him enough strength with food, and he has patiently listened to his case. He has given Elijah the space to speak his mind and to put it all out there at God's feet. What he does next is he doesn't just he doesn't coddle Elijah. He doesn't you know baby him, and he doesn't you know take all these problems away from him. What he does is he gives him purpose, he gives him tasks, he gives him something to get back to work. While duty and work may sound counterintuitive to someone, because uh, someone like Elijah right now was heartbroken, was down, was suffering dealing with things in his heart. It might seem counterintuitive, but God in his wisdom does multiple things. He doesn't just tell Elijah to get back to work. It's not, he's not being cruel here. We have to understand. He shows him a plan. He, he gives Elijah specific instructions, sure, but with that he gives him a structure, a plan. He gives Elijah a sense of Something that he can belong to. It. Sure, he's tired and he's exhausted. He's still heartbroken, I'm sure, at that moment. What Elijah does is, or what God does is, he shows Elijah. You can tell he's doing this because at the very end of that, what's he do? He reassures him that he's not alone. That he still has 7,000 other people have not yet submitted to help. He gives Elijah a purpose. And quickly, lastly, God gives Elijah. Perhaps the most important part of this interaction is the last. The succession. Right? The successor, Elisha. God promises Elijah someone that he can bring up, that he can be with, that he can, a companion, right? Uh, that he can bring up and do life with for the rest of his ministry, for the rest of his time on earth. will eventually replace him. Have you ever been discouraged and rejected and felt like someone else in the world that you can talk to about talk to uh, about your problems, and then you meet that one person who's gone through the exact same thing or is experiencing the exact same thing right now? You know that relieving feeling, right? Finally, there's somebody whom you can trust that you can talk to your problems with. There's a reason why. A lot of preachers have preacher friends. It's because um, we deal with the same things. And it's not just preachers either. Your job, your 
occupation, sports, academics, and stuff like that. Right? We tend to gravitate towards people who go through the same things, who deal with the same challenges. God is gifting Elijah, Elisha, in this case, a friend, somebody who can do life with, somebody he can share this ministry with, and eventually bring him up where he can replace him. We have examples like this throughout the Bible. There's Elijah and Elisha, David and Jonathan, one, Paul and Timothy, excellent example. Even Jesus, our, our Lord, had companions, students, disciples, apostles. God doesn't take away the pain. And he can't just, he doesn't just make the problems from Elijah's life. At the end of the day, Elijah still had to get up, pick himself back up, back to work, continue with his life. Because God wasn't going to take his life away like Elijah was praying for. What God does here is that he Elijah. Someone that he can confide in. Same goes for us. When our heart breaks, God doesn't just magically save us. And unfortunately, as much as we would like, something like that to happen. An angel won't come down and, and give us food and water whenever we need it. But what God does is in His great gives us avenues whether it be each other, family, your spiritual family, the church, the Word of God. These kinds of examples that we can learn from. God gives us all these tools. Ultimately, God responded to Elijah's broken heart, not with callousness or apathy, or you know, trying to hurry it up and get, get him back out there. Back to, he didn't do any of it. What he did was compassionate. It was it catered to his needs, both physical, emotional, and spiritual. Listen to him. Gave him encouragement that he needed. The right kind of people. Continue with it. We are heartbroken. It can be very difficult to see outside of that issue we're dealing with. What we have to remember is that God is always Where is God when my heart breaks? He's right there. Just like how he was with Elijah, ready to ready to help, ready to help us, ready to provide for our needs, be there, be a source of energy and encouragement, rejuvenation, purpose. God is always there. So we have to remember that. Continue on with life. This heartbreak is inevitable. We have to ask ourselves, where is God in that moment? Answer. I'm not, I'm not as cool as Noah because I'm not living in Minecraft. You know, in, during the class, we talked about um, Elijah's interaction with God, or God's interaction with Elijah, and in that exchange, we can see just the various ways that God ministers to someone who's heartbroken, someone 
needs a little bit of getting back up and a helping hand. You know, in Luke chapter 22, verse 44, Luke records the scene uh, in the Mount of Olives where Jesus, our Lord, is praying right, moments before he is betrayed and is delivered up to Pilate. He is praying earnestly to God. He is praying so earnestly that this sweat, he says, came like great drops of blood. What agony and sorrow he must have felt in that moment. What kind of heartbreak that must have been for Jesus. Knowing what was coming for him. Knowing what he would have to do in the near future. To bear the burden of sin. All the people in the world become a sacrificial lamb. To appease that wrath. When I think about that, I think about how Jesus had his apostles. His apostles didn't understand. They didn't truly understand what Jesus was going through, what Jesus would have to bear. Moments follow. You know, Elijah, when he was down and he was suffering, struggling, going through things and loneliness and those things in his heart. And when he felt the lowest, the most alone, that God, God sends an angel at him. God ministers to him, brings him back up to speed, gets him back out there, back to work. Jesus in this moment. I'm sure God wanted to save. I'm sure Jesus would love to save himself from that moment. This happened to us. We were separated Jesus pushed through all of that. All of that was even death. We truly appreciate the fact that Jesus, the Son of God, stepped down from heaven where he belonged, where that was his rightful place, stepped down, washed the feet of his disciples to heal people. A lot of them probably didn't even end up truly following him. Preached a word, a true gospel message, rejected. Eventually, think about it should bring us. It should bring us to tears. It should bring us to a place where we are contrite in our hearts. So much so, we're actual. When our hearts break, it will break. And that heartbreak may be great. So great that, like Elijah, just can't, can't do this anymore. And we are on the ground asking God, why? Why is this happening? And our hearts may break. Always rejoice in the fact of Jesus. 
Jesus went through time, having no one to lean upon, so that we could have Him, so that we could lean upon Him, bring our sorrows and troubles, so that He may receive us. Why not have a relationship with that Jesus, loved us and loves us still so much? Jesus will never let you down. In fact, when it breaks, because of other things, other people, circumstances, when it breaks, Jesus is the first person there to help you minister to you. It's like how God was. So, whatever you need tonight, let you come, let God make broken circumstances.